0: Amen. Alright everybody, welcome to RUF, my name is Joe Johnson, if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you, introduce yourself to me after this is over. Um, this is our last normal large group of the semester, and what we mean by that is um, our last time in Dorman, as was announced earlier, we're going to do our lessons and carol service after Thanksgiving in the chapel, which is be really fun, there will be some food there, um, a shorter service, no sermon, uh, Christmas hymns, going through the readings throughout scripture about the birth of Jesus, getting us ready for Christmas. Um, really do that. It's going to be, It was a great hit last year. Um, we loved it. It's a sweet time. So um, come check it out right before finals. It's a great way to enter into the Christmas season. But tonight, uh, we are finishing our series on relationships, looking at what the Bible says about how we were created to relate to one another and how we were created to relate to God. And that the gospel gives us everything we need to have healthy relationships with Him, and each other. We talked about our relationship with our parents. We talked about our relationship with friends. We talked about dating and marriage. And two weeks ago, um, David Strain, my friend, came and began the topic of sex, where he unpacked a biblical view of sex—that uh, sex was a gift from God given for a man and a woman in the context of marriage to enjoy, to commune together as a couple, and to get to know one another. Uh, to uh, bring life into this world and to selflessly give each other to each other, um, and so he unpacked that for us. I urge you to like listen to that. I won't unpack that really much anymore. Um, so it's on the podcast. The sound quality is a little iffy, but I urge you to go listen to it if you weren't here, and I wasn't here last week. But we're going to continue that conversation on what the Bible says about sex by looking at the danger that misuse of sex can have upon us all. Uh, we're looking at the gospel tonight. And sexual sin. Uh, This was not my plan to end the semester on this. Um, I did not know my family was going to get the flu and I would miss last week. But I actually think this is maybe somewhat appropriate and maybe somewhat good that maybe where we feel the most shame is where the gospel can shine the brightest. I'm going to tread lightly tonight because I know when we talk about sexual sin, sexual brokenness, a lot of us are bringing a lot to the table, and I can't get to every that you're thinking about in your history or even your present life now. But what I hope to show is the gospel provides hope for the sexually broken and the sexually sinful, of which we all are. So with that in mind, let me read our passage in your bulletin. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is God's word for us tonight. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. Now the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever and ever. Let me pray. And that's where God's home. Lord, we come to this topic all broken, all fallen, all sinful. Um, And yet we can also bring um, a whole lot of shame and embarrassment and fear. um, And not wanting to talk about this. I actually really appreciate other people that are here that are brave enough to come um, and hear uh, tonight about sexual brokenness and sexual sin. Uh, Lord, heal us. Uh, help us to see the hope of the gospel and cling to it. And Jesus, help us to see more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this past summer, my family and I took a trip to the beach, as we always do with my wife's family. We always go to the same place in Florida. Um, but the week always changes every year, depending on schedules or whatever. And this past year, we were there for the 4th of July week. Uh, which i've never been to the beach for fourth of july but it's super fun that on independence day fourth of july we go out on the beach as the sun goes down and everyone brings fireworks and for the first hour maybe two it was awesome right it was like kids were running with sparklers and little bottle rockets and little roman candles maybe some bigger fireworks here and there but in the distance there was these like professional shows going on that you could see I remember leaning towards April, my wife saying, we need to come do this every year. This is amazing. Look at how much fun this is. And then the night got a little bit later. And more and more people came. And teenagers, high schoolers came who ruined most things in life, came. And people started bringing more and more fireworks. And those little carts that people carry on the beach was full of thousands of dollars of fireworks. We can say the drinks were flowing with some of the adults there. And then all of a sudden the beach was shoulder to shoulder crowded and there were fireworks going off in every direction. There were people who did not know what they were doing, just sort of sticking it in the sand, lighting it, walking away. And that thing started tipping over and would kind of go above your head. And it got to like pandemonium where parent instincts finally kicked in, where my wife and I grabbed both our kids and just sort of running up to where we were staying. And on the porch from where we were staying, looking out on the beach... It looked like a war zone, like Roman candle wars, uh, people just shooting things every which direction. No one really knows what they're doing. And you just saw hordes of families and their children running from the beach knowing that this was not going to work out well. Something that was really good, misused, became something very dangerous. Uh, When we talk about sex from the Bible, I know it is an uncomfortable topic. And I'm proud of all of you for coming tonight and sticking this out. We need to understand that Christians are not anti-sex, but that we actually have a high view of sex. That The Bible has a high view of sex. It is this beautiful and powerful thing made for a certain context. But when that beautiful and powerful thing is used out of context, when it's misused, it becomes an incredibly dangerous thing. They can harm us and they can harm others. And that when God brings his word to bear on this topic, this is not God saying, don't do that, that's just bad, never think about it. He actually is calling us to have a higher view of sex, to see its power, and maybe to be aware of its danger. Uh, But I know when I go into this topic, we're all bringing kind of different stories. We're all bringing things that we've done in our past that we don't know what to do with. We're all bringing things that have been done to us that aren't our fault that we're thinking about. We're all thinking about the mistakes we made even last night or last week. And I'm not here to fill you with more guilt or shame. But I actually want you to see that God designed sex to be powerfully beautiful. But misused, it becomes powerfully dangerous. But the gospel is powerful enough to heal you. The gospel is powerful enough to heal you. All right. So how does the gospel enable us to be healed and fight sexual sin? That's where I want to go tonight. How does the gospel enable us to be healed and fight sexual sin? I want to say three things. That the gospel gives us the right view of ourself. The gospel gives us the right view of our bodies. And the gospel gives us the right view of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Ourself, our bodies, and the Holy Spirit. I'm also going to say the word sex a lot tonight, so just kind of roll with me. Let's make this as the least amount of awkward as possible. But this is a crazy important topic. If the gospel doesn't say something about this area of our life, it's not good news. It's just okay news. So let's go boldly where we're going. So first, the gospel gives us the right view of ourselves. All right, look at where Paul starts here in this section where he's going to tell the Corinthian church, the, letter that he, the people that he's writing this letter to, to fight sexual sin. This is where he begins. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul throws out a list of sins here that we're not going to say are arbitrary. He just thought of these sins. He's talking to a particular church. And these are not just sexual sins, if you notice, right? He doesn't include sexual sins in another list that's way worse than any other sins. He includes them all together. But what's interesting is that nine sins are listed. Three of them involve sexuality. Which tells me that the third of the sins he references shows me that this is what this church is dealing with. And that we can say this is what all of our hearts deal with. But sexual sin is something that affects us all. And so where does he go on to say? Verse 11, and such were some of you. Now I actually think, I think it's more interesting to think about what he didn't say there. Paul didn't list those sins and then say to the Christian church he's writing to, and aren't you glad y'all never had to deal with those things? Aren't you glad you're so much better than those other people? Aren't you glad those aren't part of your history? But what does he say? And such were some of you. As convicting as that is, I actually hope that we find a little bit of encouragement there. That we actually need to have a good doctrine of sin. That all of us are fallen. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And for our purposes tonight in talking about sexual sin, all of us are sexual sinners. All of us are sexually broken. It's convicting and it's terrible and we should mourn that and lament that absolutely. We're going to get to that in a second. I actually hope that many of you find a little bit of encouragement there that you're not alone that you're not alone in your temptation to watch porn, you're not alone in whatever sexual sin comes to mind, that you're not alone in whatever happened to you in your past that you're dealing with, that you are not alone, but that this affects us all. And the worst thing that we could possibly do is keep that hidden and to never tell anyone. I want you to hear, we're all together in this. From the most holy person you can think of to the least holy person you can think of. Me, you, your friends, everybody, we are all to some degree sexually broken. That's all of us. But where does Paul also go from there? And such were some of you, but for the Christian, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That was you without Jesus. And that's your future without Jesus. Those things, your only sin, that's all we can do. But for the Christian, the gospel means you were washed clean of those things. The gospel means those things aren't held against you anymore, but Jesus took your place and died in your place, and you were washed with his blood, that you are made new, that when God looks at you, he doesn't sin your sexual, he doesn't see your sexual path, he doesn't see your sins, he sees Christ's perfect life credited to you. So here's what this means. Are you ready? That every Christian in the world has two things true about them. But on this side of the eternity, they, they will always struggle with sin. And yet, at the very same time, They are perfectly righteous before God. Martin Luther called this sin. You're both sinful and justified. You're both broken and beloved. You're both a sinner and a saint. All of us. That's true for in Christ. But here's what's important. That it's the latter that's your identity. If you're in Jesus. That it's the second one. It's the righteousness of Christ before you. That's your true identity, as were some of you, Paul says. But now in Christ, your identity is Christ's righteousness, his name, sons and daughters of the king. The gospel gives us the ability to see ourselves in that light. The gospel gives us to be able to see ourselves as people who struggle with sin on this side of eternity. Absolutely. But that's not our true identity. And that is not how Jesus sees us on judgment day. We are seen clothed in his righteousness. And if we see ourselves in that way, here are two things that are true. That this should lead us towards. It should lead us towards humility. But on this side of eternity, we will always struggle. On this side of eternity, sin will always be there. The battle has been won, but the skirmish of our hearts are still going on. And that should humble us before a perfect and glorious God. That we are in need. That we can never graduate from grace. We can never graduate from the gospel. We should always be humble and contrite people before our Lord, grasping and needing him every day. And at the same time, it should also lead us to a great deal of hope that our identity that we didn't earn, that we didn't give ourselves has been given by Jesus and he will finish his work? Do we have a right view of ourselves? And if we're not a Christian, where do we find hope in dealing with our guilt and shame if not that? But I want to caveat here. I've got to say this before we move on to the next thing. For those of you who have had to deal with sexual sins that you did not commit but were committed against you. In other words, things that were not your fault that someone hurt you, I, I want you to hear this. The gospel has something to say about that too. That in the gospel, if you put your life in Jesus, if, if you are a Christian, then you have been washed clean. That Jesus doesn't see you as too much baggage to deal with or too broken to be around, but that he, by the gospel, has washed you clean and made you new and made you lovely before his presence and that he is angry about that thing that happened to you and he will bring justice. and He will make all things right. The gospel has something to say about that too. The one who will make all sad things come untrue. We have to begin with the gospel. That's where Paul begins. It's actually where he ends too. And we will end there as well. But when he pushes us to think about sexual sin, we have to first see ourselves, if we're Christians, in light of what Jesus has done. That's the power to resist. We view ourselves rightly. And secondly, the gospel gives us the right view of our bodies. The right view of our bodies. All right, Paul in the second paragraph starts talking about our bodies a lot, which seems like a strange place for him to go. You think he could just talk about sexual sin, but he talks about the body a lot. But if you think about it, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Um, There's a book called Love Thy Body, which I highly recommend. Nancy Percy wrote it, theologian. And in it, she actually argues that all Christian ethics, sexual ethics, are actually based on a pro-body theology. A high view of what God made us to be. So Christian arguments against abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism, those are actually come from a pro-body theology. And this is what she says. This is how she starts her book. A biblical ethic is incarnational. We are made in God's image to reflect his character both in minds and in our bodies. There is no division. We are embodied beings living an embodied life. So Paul starts putting together a theology of the body here to help us understand sexuality. And what he does here is he pushes against two bad thoughts about the body. Okay, go with me here. This is going to connect to our lives at some point. He pushes back on two bad thoughts about the body. And the first bad thought he pushes back on is what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Look what he said. This is verse uh, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy one for the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. All those quotes there—if that's in your bulletin—that Paul's quoting someone. What we think he's doing is he's quoting false teachers around this church in Corinth in the first century. Teachers who are taking Christian teaching and twisting it to mean something different. So we think he's quoting them and then destroying their argument. And here's one of the arguments they're saying. Isn't sex and what we do with our bodies just like food? Just kind of a craving? An amoral issue? It's just a craving or an itch that we need to scratch? And isn't it kind of amazing that like first century sexual ethics kind of sound like 21st century sexual ethics? That what does it matter what two people do consensually or one person does by themselves? What does it really matter? It's just a craving. It's just an itch. And Paul kind of comes in from the top rope here, doesn't he? And God will destroy both one for the other. In other words, he's saying this is not an amoral issue. This is an issue of life and death. Because the central misunderstanding to that idea that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter is a misunderstanding about the power and design of sex. Look at what he says lower than that. Um, Look at verse uh, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. All right. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean don't have sex with a prostitute. What he's getting at is the power of sex And how it works between two people. Uh, What he's actually saying is that sex is way more powerful than we can ever imagine. Why? Because it's actually designed to be a taste of how Christ is united to his church. I know that's a strange thing to think about. But Christ unites himself to his people by his spirit. We are one with him in life and in death. It is our only hope for the world to come. He unites himself to us. And what sex between two people are, two people becoming one, is actually a small picture of that unity. And if that's true, that means sex is incredibly powerful. And we all kind of know that, right? That's why when two people in their dating life um, hook up, have sex, maybe even a long period of time while they're doing that, and then at some point they break up, that's the reason why that breakup is utterly devastating. Why? Because in the Bible's view, those two people made promises to each other with their bodies that were not protected by a covenant, that was not a selfless love to one another, and then they ripped it apart. That's how powerful sex can be. That's why pornography is so addicting. Because we are playing with a power that is enrapturing our imaginations and our hearts and our desires. That's why neuroscientists now are starting to see that actually giving ourselves over pornography actually rewires the way our brain works and actually could change the physical shape of our brain. It's why lustful thoughts are so addicting and so hard to stop because it captures what we long for. It captures our imagination because we're playing with a very powerful thing. It is designed to be used in a particular and beautiful way, but misused becomes incredibly dangerous. So Paul reminds us, it really does matter what we do with our bodies. But the second thing he gets at, the second pushback he gives on a bad idea, a bad um, view of the body is that our bodies really are just for us. Our bodies are just for us. Look at where he goes here. He actually says it um, uh, multiple times. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but the Lord for the bo- for, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then verse twenty, last verse: For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What he's getting at is he's reminding the first century church in Corinth and us today who our bodies belong to and what is their purpose. What is it for the glory of God? To glorify God and enjoy him forever and to do the thing we were created to do, which is to love God and love others. That our bodies are actually meant for service to God and to others. And I think this is why he starts in verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. In other words, one of the guiding principles of Christian and biblical ethics is, are we using everything that we have and everything that we are to love God and to love others? Because here's what sex is supposed to be. All right. My friend David talked about this two weeks ago. That sex is supposed to be a thing. That in the context of marriage brings two people together where they give themselves to each other, not demand from each other. But it is a selfless giving for care of another person, not a selfish giving. And this is why I think it's going to be vaguely inappropriate, but I've already started the sentence. Um, there's a lot of sex on the college campus. Right? I'm, a, I'm dumb, I'm a campus minister, but I'm not like stupid. Right? I'm, there's a sex on the college campus of God. I would actually argue that there is a lot of bad sex on the college campus. Because it's not in the context of a committed covenant relationship where two people are giving themselves to each other. It's actually a selfish love just for our gratification. And that is a fire that is dangerous to play with. That is something that leaves people hurt and ourselves hurt. That is not the way it is designed to be. And that is devastating on our relationships and is devastating on our lives. That our bodies don't just matter to us, but actually in our sexual sin, it's hurting everyone around us. That that's hurting the person that we're hooking up with, even if it might be consensual. That it's hurting the people who are in the videos or the images that we're watching. It's hurting our future spouses and children. I don't want to add more guilt to it, but I just want to paint the picture that Paul is painting. That our bodies and what we do with them really does matter. It's of a life or death issue, and it is a dangerous game to play. Do we see that Jesus did not just buy his people's hearts or their souls or their minds, but he bought his people's bodies and will raise them with a new body in the new heavens, and new earth? Do we see that Jesus is king of our bodies? And we use them in the way that he made us. But now, lastly, ooh, and somewhat quickly. The gospel gives us a right view of the Holy Spirit. The gospel gives us a right view of the Holy Spirit. Look where Paul lands the plane, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our Paul, again, is reminding us, if you're a Christian, you're united by God with the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within you. We treat our body like a temple that the Spirit of God is within us. Whatever we do, we have the Spirit inside of us. He's also reminding us of the power that's within Christians. That we are not alone. But that actually the power of the Holy Spirit is within us. Because this is important. This is actually crucial. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. I actually think there's a vast misunderstanding on how Christians fight sin. All right, so if you're not a Christian, you're sort of looking into this thing, just kind of just, you can hear this. The Bible has a clear picture of how we are as Christians to fight sin. And here's what it's not. You're on your own and good luck. That we're tempted to think Jesus saves us from our sins, he washes us clean, and now it's all on me to fight and prove I'm worthy of his love. That is an unbiblical view on how to fight sin. But actually what the Bible presents is a people who've been washed clean and have the indwelling Holy Spirit within them. That there is a power and resources to tap into to fight sin. That there is a power that we've been given over our sin. And so here's the question. What are the resources of the Holy Spirit that we get to tap into? What are the resources the Holy Spirit gives us to tap into to fight specifically sexual sin? And I'm going to give you three of them. All right, there's more than that, but I'm going to give you three. And the first resource that we have is confession and repentance. The first resource we have is confession and repentance. I know that sounds lame, but it has to be where we begin. <laughs> that we as Christians, if you are a Christian are able to go boldly in the throne of grace, bringing your sin with you, bringing your baggage, bringing your shame, bringing everything to him to be met with his abounding grace. That the worst way we can deal with our sins is to leave it hidden and to never talk about it and to never bring it to light. Sin grows best in the dark. When we bring it to the presence of Jesus, what we'll be met with is his grace and his love and acceptance. one of the most powerful resources we have is that resource of repentance to run to Jesus and say, I hate this sin. I hate that this is a reality in my life. I hate that I deal with it. Jesus, rid me of this. Fill me with more hatred of this. Give me the energy to fight it. Rid this of me and cling to him. To find him more and more beautiful even if we have to go to him again and again and again. (laughs) May we let that bring us to the cross. So that we can see him as bigger, so we can see him as more beautiful, that we can be amazed by his grace. Do we name and claim our sins? Are we people who are good at repenting to each other and to Jesus? But the second resource we have in the Holy Spirit is simply the resource of fighting well. The resource of fighting well. All right, Paul really does say it here. Um, where is it? Verse 18 Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Run away. Fight. Fight it tooth or nail. This is something that we do not want in our lives, that is devastating to our lives and other people's lives, and it leads us away from Jesus, so fight it. But there's also wrong and hard and bad ways to fight. In other words, we, we could feel like we're on our own and just do willpower and do whatever we can to just do better at this thing. And, and if we feel like we're fighting this on our own, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to fail over and over again, Or you're going to do just well enough outwardly and become very arrogant. But actually the resource of the Holy Spirit is to fight and to deny ourselves something that we long for. And here is what that's going to feel like. It's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like death. To say no to some thought or some action or something we could do to say no to that is going to feel like we're doing. Why? Because we want it with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. But what does it do? What does it look like to do that with the spirit? It means that in that moment we are saying, though I want this with all of my heart. Though every part of me wants to go through with this. In this moment, I'm going to choose to believe that Jesus is better. In this moment, I'm going to choose to believe that Jesus is more beautiful. In this moment, I'm going to choose to believe the spirit will be faithful to me if I resist this. I am going to choose to believe that I will not regret fleeing from this. And to actually find Jesus more beautiful by resisting. Do you see the difference there? One way to fight makes us smaller and more dependent on the spirit. One way is just us sort of boasting outwardly that we're doing great. One way makes us smaller and Jesus bigger. The other way makes ourselves bigger. Do we fight with the Spirit within us? To say Jesus will come through with his promises. It will be worth it. The last resource of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about tonight is the resource of hope. The resource of hope. Um, Look at the last verse. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. I'm sorry, I just read the total wrong verse. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord... And will raise us up by his power. Um, every commentator, uh, and when I say commentator, uh, that's just books written about the Bible by scholarly people and PhDs, right, and unpacking it. Every commentator in referencing this passage pulls out verse 14 and asks the question, why is this here? Why all of a sudden is Paul, when he's talking about sexual sin in the body, why all of a sudden is he talking about the resurrection? Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And this is the consensus, Right. But in the midst of this, he gives us the hope of the one day, Sunday to come. When Jesus will raise his people in the new heavens, new earth. The one day, Sunday to come where we will not want to watch porn because we'll be with Jesus. Where we will not give in to sexual temptation because we won't have sexual temptation. we'll we'll be in the new heavens, new earth, where our history has been washed away and all things wrong have been made right. Where all sad things come untrue. Where there's no more pain, no more sin, and no more death. That he reminds us of the sure hope that is to come. And that it will come not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for his people. And here's what this does. In the midst of him pushing us to fight against sexual sin in the midst of us dealing with our sexual brokenness and dealing with our sexual past, he shows that actually in the midst of fighting, you will get a taste of that day now. You will get a taste of that freedom now. Not the whole thing will always struggle, but it gives us a taste of the one day, someday to come to give us hope to continue on. It gives us hope to never stop fighting and to never stop believing that one day, someday the fight of sin will one day come to a close and we won't have to deal with it anymore where Jesus presents his church as his beautiful and flawless bride. Do we see ourselves in that kind of hope? I've used this story before, but there's only so many stories in the world, so i got to repeat some. Um, of a wedding that I heard about in Texas, a small town in Texas. And the wedding that I heard about is a girl went to college um, uh, and um, knew people who did RUF, but when she was there one semester, failed out, um, kind of did everything that you would imagine one semester at a college and then going home and also came home pregnant And when she came home, she moved in with her parents The guy that was involved kind of got out of town and was not in the picture anymore She decided to have the baby at home and stay there have the child, healthy child, later on in life became a Christian, was converted And a little bit later on down the road met a man Who was also a Christian who loved Jesus, who loved her and loved her child and so asked her to marry him. And she said, yes, there's a wedding to plan. And the talk of the small town, some of you all from small town, small town's talk, was surely this is not going to be a big wedding. Surely this is not going to be like a major wedding where she's going to wear a white dress and walk down the aisle. Surely this will be like a backyard wedding. We all know what she did. We all know her history, right? Maybe it should just be quiet. And actually, the woman heard that and thought, yeah, dad, maybe we should just do a small one. Let's just kind of get it done with and move on. This is what the dad did. This is a bold move. He threw the biggest party that town has ever seen. The best drinks, the best food, the best band invited everyone in the town and then went and found the most beautiful and expensive white dress he could find. I'm sure she had some input in that white dress. And then gives it to his daughter and says, You wear it and wear it proudly because I say you can but more importantly, because Jesus says you can. And so what did she do? In front of the whole town, the biggest party that town's ever seen, she wore her white dress down the aisle and wore it proudly because that's who her father and her savior said she was. Do you see that Jesus washes his people and presents them as flawless? And right now, on this side of eternity, what he's calling you to do if you're a Christian is to live that identity out. To be who he says you are. And to live in that freedom knowing that you are the delight of his eyes as a groom looks at a bride. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to consider that an invitation. That that is the love and the healing and the forgiveness and the grace that you are longing for. And the only way to deal with our sexual sins, our sexual past, is through Jesus. And the gospel has a lot to say about that. Let me pray. The Father in heaven, um, in all honesty, I was terrified to get this tonight. Uh, Lord, this is such a hard topic and brings up so many things, and, and we didn't cover everything. And Lord, I pray, I pray for deep healing in all of our hearts. Uh, Jesus, for us to run to you in confession and repentance. Jesus, for us to be washed anew in your grace. Jesus, to find healing from our past and our present in you. Help us to be people, Jesus, who find you more beautiful than anything else. Help us to be people who are falling more in love with you. Help us to be people who believe in you and are seeing healing, even in this part of our life that brings much shame. Uh, Jesus, you're the only way we can deal with our sin and shame. So help us all come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and stand together.